0: This is Chatter, I'm Shane Harris. This week, historian Tim Naftali on misremembering Watergate and January 6th.
1: Richard Nixon never apologized for his abuse of power, never. What he apologized for was dragging everybody through his mismanagement of a criminal conspiracy. Our political culture will permit president to completely stonewall an impeachment. Richard Nixon didn't think that was possible. Donald Trump tested the theory and it turned out to be true. What Watergate showed was how fragile our institutions are. And that an even smarter, more malicious president could have wreaked havoc.
0: Tim Naftali, welcome to Chatter. It is lovely to see you here. It's a, a delight um, to be here and uh, to talk to you especially, Shane. Well, thank you. Thank you. I wish we could do this in person, but you are you there in New York and I'm here in D.C. You're surrounded by hundreds of books, I'm sure half of which you have written. <laughs> now the question is, how many of them have I read? <laughs> you don't have
1: to say the they have many colorful. They have many, many colorful <laughs> um covers and so it makes a nice backdrop.
0: That is, it's a very this
1: way I am familiar with most of them.
0: Okay. Well that's good. That's a start for most people. I am ashamed to admit how many books in my bookshelf I have not read, uh, but I am trying to remedy that. Slowly, as time as time goes on, uh, I of course have read your wonderful books and all the things that you write. Uh, and you write, you write all over the place. You, where are you mostly writing these days? I mean, we're going to talk about your great piece in the Atlantic, but like, where do you hang your hat as a writer these days? If you had to think of a place, um,
1: I I wouldn't think of it in that way.
0: Okay, um,
1: because uh, I'm motivated to write by by whatever issue or story i want to tell
2: mm-hmm. a
1: historian i generally want to tell stories factual stories i want yeah. to tell stories. <laughs> if i know something that i think is really neat cool and connects to a broader issue i want to tell that story right and and one of the uh, one of the cool things about being a historian you know with a lot of curiosity is that you store up stories and they're not completed you know, but you've got them in the, in the mental database.
2: Mm -hmm. And then
1: either you come across some more data that completes the story or something's happening around you. And it is absolutely clear that that those three or four pieces of a mosaic matter now, and then you fit them into some broader pattern. And then there are, are issues that we all have as citizens that you just see something and you want to write about. it. So, um, I have, um, I never quite understood this term, but it, it means a lot Uh, to many people. So I'll use the word wheelhouse. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, I've never been a mechanic in my life. I'm not the kind of person who can actually fix anything. But I guess my wheelhouses um, would include um, presidential histories and uh, presidential history and uh, international relations history especially the history of the secret world and the role that information and code action has played in shaping the international system. Um, but I've been, I'm also, I also write about, um, you know, domestic matters. Um, you know, when you say presidential history, it's it, it's not just what the president and the first lady are doing in the White House. It has a lot to do with the nature of the article two institution the executive and right. how it it's in with the other two, so so I find myself writing about a lot of different things um, because I'm moved to do it, and and I I'm lucky and I, I feel very blessed in this regard that I, I I've managed to create a career for myself where I do have the space to write about practically anything, and it doesn't mean I always have an audience for it, but I, I feel good and complete when I do at least com- uh, finish the idea that I wanted to share
0: and you've always struck me you know we've known each other since I think we must have met in 2004 2005 yeah. well, well, we, well we can talk about that and say because we, we were introduced by John Boindexter I think is how the story goes yes. um, but you've always struck me as a historian who also brings a journalist's sense of kind of immediacy and trying to make marshaling history to make the present relevant and to explain why Things seem maybe are unfolding the way they are. I mean, you have a really good sense of timing uh, and have always enjoyed writing as well in the moment as well as writing retrospectively.
1: Well, I, 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 I have a low boredom threshold. And, um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's, a, there's the Isaiah Berlin wrote about hedgehogs and foxes. And mm-hmm. some, some uh, scholars focus on one thing. And that's what they do. And other scholars are just around; they're all over the map. And they are. Um, and I'm that scholar. I I would um, to me, uh, with few exceptions, deep dive equals boredom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I am comfortable moving from topic to topic as the world around me changes. And um, one of the things that I I learned in Graduate school um, was that uh, was that you always have to be careful about um, nominating parallels for where we are today. Saying this is just like X because actually it's never just like
2: X. Mm-hmm.
1: First of all, the players are usually different because X usually happened about a generation ago, and the circumstances around it are have changed. And I suspect we'll be talking about you know January 6th versus Watergate, for example. Yeah. But but, um, it's pedantic and therefore boring to say it's completely different and we can learn nothing from it. So there's mm-hmm. got to be a middle road where something that happened 30 years ago involving different players, but similar concerns, questions, consequences shed some light on today. And usually it's by comparison. So it doesn't give you a road map for what to do, but it gives you a sense of the road. And I love doing that. I think that's a, th- that is a, a way where my training and my, my curiosity can be useful to people making big decisions or even small decisions today. So relevant, because I know a lot of my colleagues get really nervous when you say relevant, because it means, well, basic research has no point unless it can be applied. I think it is absolutely inevitable that the basic research you do on the past will have some applications today. Um, if we're talking about the same country, I mean, if you're doing basic research about Rome, <laughs> um, you know, okay, I think it's a bit of, it could be a bit of a stretch. But right. if you're doing another era in in American history, you'll you will find points of intersection. And at the very least, you'll give people a context to understand how the heck we got to where we are now.
0: Right, and we'll get to we'll, we'll talk about Watergate uh, shortly here too, because it's the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Um, but first, just just to back up even a little bit. Um, just talk a little about what where you grew up and what drew you to history, or even what drew you to writing and telling stories. Well, I grew up in Montreal, and um, I was politicized.
1: Um, uh, in the language debates, uh, of the, I mean, I was a kid, but in the 1970s, um, and, uh, although I will say that my, my family did watch the Senate Watergate hearings. So as a, as a kid, I, I watched Ehrlichman and Haldeman and right. <laughs> had no idea that later part of my life would be shaped by the misdeeds of those gentlemen. But, right. but, but really the, the principle, um, political events of, of, my childhood had to do with language. And, and, um, I was part of, uh, an English speaking minority in the province of Quebec. Um, I went and learned French, um, uh, but, th- but those issues, which seem very far away and probably, uh, rather small to some of your listeners or maybe all of them, those taught me a lot about power and community. And top-down change mm-hmm. and and left me with a skepticism about um, powerful governments. Um, I, um, I saw in Quebec, a government come to power with, with an ideology that sought to engage in in, soci- in a social in a laboratory experiment. Um, forcing social change on people. And, um, you know, I was extremely young at the time. And so I was able um, to react pretty well because I could learn a second language, uh, you know, reasonably easily.
0: Yeah, it's easier when you're a kid. But
1: I was looking at, you know, people my mother, my parents age and older and to have a government force them to speak a different language. um, taught me a lot about how um, how ideologues can ruin communities. So it, it's funny. I mean, I uh, the Cold War was a very ideological time. But but where I learned about um, where I, l- I developed a skepticism about about um, about top down change mm. was actually viewing what the Parti Quebecois did in in Quebec. And I I, I became, you know, in, in high school, uh, an advocate for uh, free speech um and for finding a way not to force people um to change, but to find a sort of find a sort of a, a, a middle road so you'd have room for for obviously both languages but also uh, in the province of Quebec where the English minority would not lose all of its language rights, and that made me very interested in in a career in in government um in canada um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh defending free speech and what americans what we americans i'm an american citizen now um would call first amendment rights um so as a kid i had a tangible understanding now it, it's not what uh people my age in the United States would have expect, uh, experience, although there were all kinds of f- phenomenally important, very influential social changes going on in, in the United States. And arguably what's really interesting is that in the United States, we needed both top down and bottom up pressures in order to have civil rights. Um, but, what I witnessed in Canada or Quebec was what can happen when when top-down change is um, not only sort of blind to the needs of those that are going to be affected, but actually willfully uh, contemptuous of them. So, so I, I I learned a lot about politics, and I, I developed an understanding of of federal systems growing up in, in Quebec and. That's sort of a, in, my interest in politics, early interest. My interest in history come from the fact that I, um, that, that my uh, family uh, experienced the Holocaust. And uh, my uh, father was born in Bucharest, Romania in 1936. He survived a pogrom in his neighborhood, his um uncle died in Auschwitz, his uh, two of his uh, cousins died uh, in Auschwitz. Uh, A third cousin survived, moved to the United States. And um, I got to know him. I was very fortunate in that. And he was like, since my father was an only child, he was like my father's brother. Mm -hmm. So um, as a child, uh, I was fascinated by how international events can affect families and personal lives. And one of the, one of the ways that I try to connect students to history is I and also a way for me to be intellectually connected to my students is I ask them about how their personal histories um, have overlapped with world history. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, what is the first world history event, world historical event you remember? Right. Um, Because I think the personal history, which has an an importance all by, by itself, can sometimes interact with world history and often and often in tumultuous moments does. And it's fascinating for individuals to think about that. And 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 I learned the importance of history by listening to my um grandfather, uh, who emigrated to Canada after World War II, talk to me about the old country. And and there was with him a process. It took it took decades for him to really want to talk to me about um the war. Um I was um, I was and still am a big television watcher, though now I watch things that stream. Sure. But When I was a kid, uh, I was shaped by two television programs in a big way. One was called Roots, mm. uh,
2: yes. which
1: wasn't my family's story. But that's there is a general um, there's a, a general applicability of Roots in that. in it is a reminder of the importance of who came before us. And, and who we are, of course, for America it's 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 about the original sin in this country but but for outsiders at that point I considered myself an outsider. It was also about the importance of uh who we are today is a is a function of who we were. so I wanted to know more about my family and so roots um I was I don't know twelve years old at the time or something like that roots uh, got me interested in in oral history, and my first oral histories were with my relatives. Um, And the other uh, television show that had a a major impact on me was was Holocaust, which was the first depiction uh, of of the Holocaust um, for a mass audience. In fact, I believe it was so powerful that it was translated into German and Hmm. it was the first sort of mass media Presentation of the Holocaust that West Germany had seen. Wow, West Germans had seen. So yeah, anyway. I don't
0: know this show. That's interesting. I've never heard. You
1: know. Of course, like everything else, it was with Meryl Streep, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean Meryl Meryl Streep is the um, is the most omnipresent um, uh, character in our popular culture and has been since the nineteen seventies. Anyway, oh, she's in fact, magnificent yeah. in this. But there, it's a it's a remarkable cast, um, and. And just like Roots, it's telling the story of, um, of families uh, mm. in a moment of evil uh, or moments of evil. So anyway, uh, those two uh, lit a fire. And my my first research on his, about history was about my own family. My mm. first time I went into an archive was the YIVO Institute of Jewish Research in New York when we came to visit my father's cousin, Raymond, who had survived Auschwitz. And I, I went to the, the Evo Institute, was looking up Naftali, our, our name. And uh, there was a debate in my grandfather's mind as to whether we were Ashkenaz or Sevardic. So mm. in any case, that's that's where that's how the interest in history began. Yeah. And combining the two, the interest in politics and the interest in history has kept me interested in everything ever since.
0: So you find yourself as a young kid watching the Watergate hearings, uh, not knowing that, it, that so much of the Nixon presidency in Watergate will come to define your career. You've written extensively about Nixon, about Watergate. You were notably, uh, both notably and notable for this discussion, the first federal director of the Richard Nixon presidential library, which is to say not a director that was handpicked by the family to tell the story of Watergate that the Nixon family wanted them to tell, which, of course, figures in your career there. Um, but, you know, we're, we're now at this moment, this this 50th anniversary, which is, it, it is striking to me because I feel like in so many ways, like we're just we just live with Watergate all the time. And so that even marking it as an anniversary seems a little bit um, arbitrary to me. I mean, Watergate occupies a place in our understanding of presidential scandal and abuse of power, unlike any other event. It seems to me so much that we just tack the word "gate" onto anything that involves a scandal. Um, so, why why do you think? And I am sure you've thought of this before, even the anniversary. Why does Watergate hold such a singular place in our imagination about how we think about, you know, presidents abusing power? Uh, and 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 the kind of, you know, the top-down abuse uh, that we've seen before Watergate and after. Why does this one, like, occupy our attention the way that it does?
1: I think it's because a president was forced from office. Mm. We have to take our, ourselves back to the imperial presidency and how the Cold War, well, actually, the outcome of World War II uh Put the United States in, an, in 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 a in a position of a, a power, global power, it never had before, and that meant that the president of the United States had power that no no American had ever had before. And I would argue, because of nuclear weapons, the the president of the United States was the most powerful person in the world. So, the fact that that person could be dislodged from power peacefully after being reelected in a landslide is a, a world historical moment. the The fact that Watergate was the was the proximal cause, and I hope we'll talk about a little bit really about why you know Nixon leaves office. But the, yeah. the most famous the cause is Watergate. It means that Watergate symbolizes the toppling of an imperial presidency. It's a big, huge deal. And then gates are. Not Bill Gates, but the but the suffix <laughs> Gates is applied to crises when people think ah. Well, they may not have used as high pitched a voice, to say it, but
0: <laughs> they're thinking it. Ah,
1: yeah. ah. <laughs> um, although I would prefer to say ah. Um, th- this is going to be as significant,
2: right, as Watergate.
1: and that, right. and, that Outcome, and, and, yeah. and, and and part of it, you know. Let's just well, let's be candid here. I mean, I think I'm candid, but let's be really candid, Shane. Sometimes people get lazy, right? And <laughs> no. So they, no, no. Honestly. Your listeners can't see our expressions. But yes. um, the, the fact of the matter is, it's a little bit of lazy thinking, right? Yeah, well, yeah. That this is going to be the next gate. When in fact, right. once again, you got to look at the details and circumstances of why it was that something that we now know as Watergate could have toppled... A popular, though not loved, which is important, mm-hmm. a popular American commander-in-chief. And that's what that that's why it it recurs. Now, that said, although there was all kinds of interest in 2012, during the 40th anniversary of Watergate, because <clears throat> this is not my first anniversary rodeo.
2: <laughs> um
1: um it wasn't like it is now. Uh-huh. Let's remember, the president of the United States in 2012 was Barack Obama. Right. Um, this was President No Drama Obama, mm-hmm. um, right. who. For a number of very powerful and in fact, moving reasons. Um, racism being most important, or most important. Not only was he going to be, <clears throat> um, not only was he going to be, uh, completely honest, at, at, which appears to be his personality, but he knew he had to run an absolutely squeaky clean administration because right. there were people who hated him anyway, right? Because of the color of his skin, and so you have the Obama administration, which is scandal free talk about you know two political you know moments of great tension whether benghazi yeah. and uh and uh and the atf the business about uh guns uh, but really we're not talking about there's no corruption in this administration. Right. okay right. so 2012 we're not surrounded by recollections of a corrupt oval office well you know we're getting get, what i'm getting to sure. is we, we've just we've just survived a constitutional heart attack. Okay, now we now. Unfortunately, we put in a stent, but we probably need multiple um, uh, bypass <laughs> Yes, multiple bypass. We're not apparently apparently our our surgeons or our cardiologists are in, in, incapable of that. All right, but we got a stent in, and um, uh, sorry for perhaps inappropriate. No, it's a, it's uh, a good metaphor. Is it? But but point is, we we just so of course watergate uh it, it it it's it's very it's cur- it seems like current events to us right so right. that's why this anniversary it's not because of the 5-0 it's that it's what we're experiencing around us yeah. and time and again in the last well and since since president trump former president trump fired comey james comey director of the fbi we have been we have been asking ourselves: Is this is this watergate? Yeah, is is yeah. this is this the gate? Yeah. I for the moment? And, mm. and believe me, I participated in. Well, I was being asked these questions, and so what time and again, our political class, um, and our you know, and fellow members of the media, and we're asking them, "Hey, oh my God!" And then they would go, and this: what playbook do I use to try to right. figure this out? Right. Well, I think it's it's in our consciousness uh, in a way that it wasn't for the 30, 40th anniversary, let alone the 30th anniversary.
0: I think when I think back on Watergate, too, and I, I'm not by any means like you are an historian of it. I mean, I only know <clears throat> what I've what I've read and what I've kind of thought about and inevitably been comparing to current events. One of the things that strikes me about it is that we tend to remember Watergate, it seems to me, as this kind of this one event of the break in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate building and there were all of these other scandals attaching to Nixon uh, some of them flowing from that some of them not then in some ways were even more scandalous. I mean, you know, the, the, the breaking into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, uh, you know, uh, political campaign uh, shenanigans, the donations. But we kind of like all just like when we step back, what we think of it as the break-in is like there's the break-in and then Nixon is forced from office. But it's it's really more complicated than that, isn't it? It's more complicated.
1: And yet, and I would argue it's also uh, a lot simpler to understand mm. because in many ways, uh, the Watergate break-in is such a. Con- the whole story is so convoluted.
0: Yeah, it really okay, is. Let's,
1: let's let's just get get down to the the essentials here. When you have an imperial presidency, uh, you have to hope that your const our constitution is strong enough to prevent abuses of power. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, um, uh, human beings have not done well when they've been too powerful. Um, and, and we are pretty, we're, we're quite lucky that in the, in the cold war, we didn't have that many, by the way, that many examples of abusive presidential behavior. Nixon abused his power for cynical reasons and sought to, um, sought vengeance against his his assumed enemies, perceived enemies. And he was going to use the power of the presidency to go after them. That philosophy is dangerous mm-hmm. in, in a, in a, in a constant Republic. So that's, that's the deal here. The, the The story about Nixon is that Nixon had no personal guardrails when it came to using power and, and how did he want to abuse power? Well, he wanted, He wanted he wanted the IRS to audit, which is a nasty business, to audit his political enemies, not because they had stolen anything, not that there was any sort of suspicions that they were hiding income, but because he wanted to hurt them. Um, We have Nixon on also on tape because you can hear him talk about we're going to go after our enemies. We're going to do this to them. By the way, he always said, because they did it to me. (laughs) <laughs> um, there was a, a sense with they Nixon, drew first blood. Yeah, well, it's a major with Nixon. There was a sense of grievance. A lot of this was perceived grievance. Okay. But so it's IRS, but he also wanted to do, to do them damage. Um, physically, there is a chilling conversation between Bob Haldeman, who was chief of staff and the president, Nick, uh, Richard Nixon in May of 1971. This is before the pentagon papers of that summer talking about how they've hired goons who are members of the teamsters union to go out and break the arms and legs of anti-war demonstrators the white house has hired goons to to uh, to uh, quell dissent now we we were talking about the first amendment before so um, here we have the First Amendment being attacked by a president of the United States and being physically attacked.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the president just enjoying it. So um, so that is the mindset of this man. Um, now, there are, are things he did, because this is the climate he creates. <clears throat> there are things he did, and there are a lot of things that he didn't get done because the people around him stopped him. And one of the one of the parallels I, I drew uh, in the first months of the, of the Trump era, having listened to Trump in the campaign and having a, a deja vu of that, oh, my God, this is, this is, a, this is a man without guardrails again in the Oval Office, was the question of to what extent will the people around Trump contain him the way that Nixon's people contained him? And Nixon's people tried to contain him. The problem was that Nixon's people were also flawed. So uh, his chief of staff was a was a vicious anti semite. So when Nixon would rant about Jews, he didn't. There were no guardrails there.
2: Right. When the
1: Nixon, when the president of the United States says, "I want a list of every Jew," and that's the term he used, every Jew in the federal government, and I want a non Jew on top because they, you can't trust these people. Haldeman said, "I agree with you,"
0: <laughs> right. Good idea, boss. We'll get right on that. Yeah. You know, and and uh,
1: they slow walked, creating a list of every Jewish American in the federal government, and they didn't fire them. <clears throat> but the president would not be satisfied without a little bit of blood on, on the table. And so <clears throat> they put pressure on a group of Jewish Americans who were in the Bureau of Labor Statistics because they were producing unemployment statistics, which the president felt were phony in order to undermine his reelection bid. This is 1971. They didn't because of civil service protections, they couldn't fire any of them, but they investigated. them. And and the Nixon Library has a has a really very painful uh, group of documents, painful, because when you read them, you realize, oh, my God, is this the United States or is this the 1930s? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're talking about ethnics and that was their internal code for Jews they knew they couldn't write down jews right. so they said how many ethnics are there in this unit and so it wasn't just the president but a bunch of his unit uh, junior staffers including a fellow named frederick malik fred malik who were complicit in this horrible um uh, and illegal and unconstitutional effort uh to uh make make things difficult for jews in the federal government and uh And that's Nixon. So, 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 but none of that was public. Yeah. Public Congress, they didn't know any of this. Yeah. And why did they know something? Because fortunately for us, and this is a, um, and I'll discuss what I mean by fortunately, but, but you and I understand the world of the national security state, if you will. Right. Nixon had gone even too far for, for the established intelligence and law enforcement community. Um, he had seen the role the FBI had played in political espionage, uh, earlier in the fifties, and he assumed what they were doing in the sixties. And when he comes to power, Jared Hoover doesn't want to do that anymore. He's still, uh, the FBI is still running some, um, I don't know if they, if they're formally illegal, but certainly unconstitutional, um, investigations of dissenters in this country. <clears throat> but, but J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to play the games. He doesn't want to uh, do the black bag jobs, in other words, breaking and entering, um, um, that the FBI used to do, and the wiretapping. They don't want to do that either. Right. Um, and then the CIA, which used to run operations, we know this from investigations done after Watergate, they used to run their own operations on US soil against American journalists to, to find leakers. There's Operation Mockingbird, for example. And then 1963, John F. Kennedy, about whom I'm writing currently. John F. Kennedy um had the CIA uh wiretap two journalists uh because of some some leaks that uh, or apparent leaks that appeared in the press. It's amazing. So so the, and this and the CIA doesn't have the right to do this under the National Security Act. So these were illegal, but they were permitted by the president because at that time, if the president used the term national security, they could, in a sense, overcome the Constitution. Your constitutional rights as an American could actually be superseded, believe it or not, in that era by a president who was waving the flag of national security. So that was the, the world that Nixon grew up in. Now, what he did was he took it to a level that John F. Kennedy didn't take it. Again, not that John F. Kennedy was blameless, but what Nixon did was he doubled down. And and that's extremely dangerous. Now, fortunately for the country, uh, the FBI and the CIA, they, 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 they would only go so far for him. I say fortunately because... A lot of what I just explained to you, we didn't know at the time. Journalists didn't know at the time. Right, this was, this was stuff that came out after he was Afterwards, and, and it came up because of the scandal of Nixon. Right. So it meant that, that our FBI and the CIA could engage in unconstitutional behavior in the United States without the press and Congress knowing. But uh, because they were good at it, and quote, unquote, in other words, they were professional. I'm not saying this is good for the country. It's not at all good for the country. It's not, at for the country. It's not at all good for the Constitution. But they were professional. Nixon, however, wanted to go further than that. And so he set up or had set up um, these um, unorthodox um, uh, intelligence organizations in the White House hiring retirees. And it's those groups that got him into trouble. If it weren't for those groups, we might never have heard about the abuses of power that I've just... Uh, discussed.
0: Yeah, that's the plumbers, right? These are the people who become the, the ones who do yeah. the break in. It's the, it's, it's, it's the,
1: they be, they started as the plumbers and then they become the, the creep. They come, the committee to reelects espionage.
0: Right? One of the great unfortunate acronyms in presidential yeah. history, the committee to yeah. reelect the president.
1: <laughs> so if, it, let's go into it. Let's do a little, little bit of, let's go into the weeds for a moment. Yeah. But it, there, I think it, it matters. One of the, uh, One of the ways that intelligence services uh, um, protect secrets and operations is by compartmentalizing information and knowledge. They also uh, try to uh, avoid individuals being involved in too many operations, because if that individual becomes insecure, starts working for a foreign government, for example, you're not just revealing what he or she knows, but about a current operation, but the ones that they worked on before. What the Nixon White House did was that they connected two conspiracies. They connected the plumbers. These are the people that <clears throat> tried to find dirt on Daniel Ellsberg. They're the ones who broke into Daniel Ellsberg. He's he's the one, he's the whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers in mm-hmm. 1971. They broke into his psychiatrist's office because the CIA, they went to the CIA first. They wanted the CIA to come up with a psychological profile of, of Ellsberg that they could leak to the press because they wanted to undermine him. He was a he, he was becoming he was lionized in the press, I think, for good reason, as a whistleblower. So they wanted to destroy him. And the CIA said uh, they did something for him, for for the White House. He said, we're not really supposed to do this on on, on American citizens, <laughs> But here it is. And it, And it wasn't what they wanted. They wanted. They want to dirt on his sexual life and what
2: happened.
1: Okay. Right. So you have the plumbers and they are, uh, fortunately for the, for the world, they are, um, uh, they're the gang that can't shoot straight. They are, they are not professional. They screw up the break-in. Um, they left the door. I interviewed one of the members of the team for the Nixon library. Um, they had, they had gone in, uh, Uh, In that era, UPS didn't exist, but they had gone in as a delivery service and had delivered a package to the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And in leaving, they left the, the door unlocked to the to the the this is in Beverly Hills. And apparently there was an alleyway. Okay, yeah. The idea that someone wouldn't notice the door at the end of the day, that the door was unlocked and lock it. I don't know. That never seemed to dawn on them would happen. So what, what happens that night? They come back. They open, they turn the door, turn the, the knob, and it's locked. Wow! So instead of saying, okay, or, you know, finding a locksmith, I mean, one of their paid locksmiths, they decide to break in. Now, the whole point of this operation was to have a, it was a black bag job. This was a uh, covert entry and 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 exit. No one was supposed to know they'd gone inside. Uh, But these brilliant people broke the door. So immediately, you know, it was going to be a crime scene, right? Right. So they break in and then they don't find what they're looking for. And then they said, oh, my goodness. Well, this is going to be investigated by the um, Beverly Hills Police Department. We got to make it look like um, a junkie came in here looking for prescription drugs. (laughs) So they go in and they break open. They break break open the uh, medicine cabinet not a bad they, cover. Yeah. And, and then they, and then they, they put drugs all, over this is how they describe it to me. Right. He described me, you know, drugs all over the place and they exit. Well, so they don't find anything and they make a crime scene <clears throat> and they report this back to Washington. And, uh, the president's, um, chief domestic aide, a guy named John Ehrlichman, who should never have been in charge of this in the first place says, well, wait a moment. This is not what I, or I didn't in, struck him to do this. This (laughs) is supposed to be covert. Do they understand what covert means? So we have Nixon talking to Ehrlichman a few days later, and Nixon knows that there's a covert operation against a U.S. citizen. But like most of the time in the Cold War, the imperial president doesn't want to know the details. They want to be able to deny it. It's called plausible deniability. So you have Hold the because Nixon is getting um, an update from Ehrlichman, and you have Ehrlichman saying to him, oh, "We we had this covert operation out in Beverly Hills, but you don't want to know about it, or out in Los Angeles, but you want to know about it." And President says, "Fine." But then he then Ehrlichman goes on to talk about the campaign to discredit uh, Ellsberg. It is very clear that in the president's mind, he is connecting this covert operation in Los Angeles to Ellsberg. <clears throat> so we we know the president knew. That, that his people were engaging in crim- criminal activity. It wasn't just the case of, of um, zealous uh, lieutenants going beyond their writ, their mandate. The president was the puppeteer in the right. Band. Right. Anyway, when the president puts pressure on his team to get better intelligence on his opponents in the 72 election, Ehrlichman actually um, not involved in the conversation, but Haldeman, the chief of staff, and John Mitchell, who is going to become the chief of the, uh, the uh, re-election campaign chairman, at the point, at point, he's the attorney general. Haldeman and Mitchell sit down in 1971 and say, well, we who's going to run this? And they decide to choose the same guy who ran the break-in in Beverly Hills, G. gordon Letty. So they, at that point, they connect screw-ups of 71 with the future screw-ups of 1972. Mm -hmm. That's why it's very, you've got to be careful about talking about inevitability in history, but it it became highly likely that something was going to happen that was going to reveal all of this bad stuff because they reused the same conspiracy against um, first Muskie and then McGovern that they'd used against Ellsberg.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, so this this gang that couldn't shoot straight uh, goes from, you know, a burglar. I mean, basically ruining uh, a psychiatrist's office in Beverly Hills to to running an unsuccessful uh, break in at the Watergate. It's the same, pretty much the same people. And why this is happening is because Richard Nixon is wants to do something that the national security state doesn't want to do. But Nixon's desire uh, for intelligence is insatiable.
0: So let's talk about some of the ways that the story of both the story of Watergate, but also the story of Nixon gets captured in the popular imagination, which is largely through film. I mean, I can't think of another president or another sort of period of, of presidential history that's been the subject of so much fascination and films in Hollywood, at least not recent ones. Um, all the president's men is sort of the big one that comes to mind, and and also sort of shapes how we think about Watergate and the undoing of the Nixon presidency as something that was forced by two dogged investigative reporters and a newspaper that that wouldn't back down. Even though know, that's a huge part of it, but that is one part of the story it is not the story of of watergate but just talk a little bit about that film and sort of you know how much influence it still has over how people understand what happened in that era
1: well that 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 film uh launched uh, uh you know a thousand wonderful investigative ships mm-hmm. it, it's it created a sense of it of empowerment for uh, the fifth estate for the for the press, for the media in, the, in this country, um, and it's it, it is a, a a story of of two dogged reporters, of Woodward and Bernstein. Um, it also gave us some cultural tropes. That the most famous is actually fictitious, which is "follow the money." <laughs>
2: that, 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 was never it, that was never said.
1: That was never said. It was the it was actually really what what the. With the, invest- the most important investigation involved uh, following the money that the burglars had, which took you back to the committee to elect the president. But um, it gave you one the sense um, that uh, and a powerful sense that that uh, you could overcome corruption. Yeah, right. That despite the imperial presidency, if you dug hard enough, you could you could find the truth, and and it makes it and actually a standalone product of that era in film, Mm
2: -hmm. because most
1: of that era in film is dominated by powerful and somewhat paranoid views of the conspiracies around us and how you you can't actually undo them. Whether it's the movie, the parallax view or three days of the condor.
0: Condor.
2: It
1: actually, in the end, uh, we are individuals fighting these dark forces. Right. So all the president's men is the, it's the outlier where yeah. the and actually we can actually two people can actually undermine the dark force
0: and it's kind of the most unrealistic of all of them because it sets up journalists as somehow these the journalists will save us from corruption it's the same it's the same idea that persists all through the trump administration where they're turning you know people who are opposed to the president are looking to journalists saying you're our last hope it's like we're obi-wan kenobi or something yes
1: well <laughs> i remember um daniel shore was a uh, who was a, an important journalist at the time for CBS News, and then was I mean might be uh, might be familiar to uh, your audience because he spent his remaining his last years working for N- for NPR, <clears throat> uh, and li- he lived uh, fortunately a long time. Daniel Shore uh, actually told me in an interview for the library that he spent a, a long time telling um, aspiring journalists uh, not. To get too romantic about the Watergate story, because Mm -hmm. if you're not careful, you're going to look for the big, the one big thing. And he said the best journalism, the way to keep the powerful honest is a lot of little things, is the day to day cynicism and the missteps um, that they do or they undertake. And if you are just following that, rather than looking for the one big kill, but just the day to day, monitoring of how they use power, or uh, how the wealthy use money, that will make this a, a more secure and healthier society than than just hoping to bring down a president. And he said a lot of people, uh, you know, thought that they had found that thread that if they pulled pulled it long and hard enough, the entire sweater would fall apart.
2: Right.
1: He's, you know, and, and really Watergate is a once in a generation or maybe once in a two or three generation story. Daniel Shore was a very thoughtful man, said that the downside of the, the, the role of journals in Watergate is that it set unreasonable expectations.
0: Yeah. What journalism can
1: do against the powerful.
0: And Daniel Shore himself, who was the target of Nixon's ire. And didn't he read the didn't he reveal that to himself and to the public at the same time when he's like reading the list of people on the enemies okay. list oh, not... on CBS and okay. he hits his own name? OK, you're going to
1: please indulge me. Yeah, if yeah, this is too long. We'll cut it out. But this is just to show you how the uh, the president was not in control. Um, it was not on the same wavelength as the FBI. OK, so the uh, the White House wants to um, hurt Daniel Shore. OK, and the way that they like to hurt their enemies, if they if they couldn't, if they had no reason to use the IRS, is that they would find something about their their sex life, that, 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 about them, and then leak it to other journalists, to friendly journalists. So they sent a message to the FBI saying investigate Daniel Shore. And the FBI didn't know why. Okay? So no, this is For just what
0: exactly? fantastic.
1: So the FBI thought well the white house must want to hire him for a job that <laughs> daniel shore for a job so they took this as if this was a background security <laughs> investigation which by the way meant that they called up friends of daniel shore your Amazing. friend is being considered for a position of trust in the us government could you tell us you know this and that well the idea that Daniel Shore would be considered for a position of trust in the Nixon administration was crazy, Amazing. and this got back to Daniel Shore. All right, so Shore finds out the FBI is asking questions of his friends about him, and so Daniel Shore asks the White House. So the White House then, and it was somebody named Pat Buchanan, uh huh, yes. decides well. I, I guess what we're going to say is that we were considering him for a job because they had to cover up the. <laughs> to, so so then the White House announces that they asked the FBI to look, look into Daniel Shore because they were going to hire him for a job, which of course is hilarious. So this is an example that you know uh, the the FBI at the the FBI was not on the same white flag, fortunately, as the Nixon White House and the Nixon White House. was was not terribly, thank thank goodness, terribly professional in the way in which it abused power. I'm saying this, and now I'm going from a a jocular tone to a really serious one. Mm. What Watergate showed was how fragile our institutions are and that an even smarter, more malicious president um, and a more malicious FBI and a militia CIA could have wreaked havoc given the dark side of Richard Nixon. Fortunately, um, he's gonna get caught. Right. But what if we had a president who was even more Machiavellian than Nixon, mm-hmm. even smarter than Nixon, and was surrounded by aides who were better at these games than all that president's men. In that era, uh there would have would have i mean americans would have suffered and yeah. and the takeaway from watergate for for many people i don't think is correct which is that the system worked i think huh. the takeaway from watergate is how how accident and unforced errors and luck played a role and dogged investigations played a role in bringing down a president the system, if if Nixon had not been taping himself with a voice, with a sound activated system, as opposed to Kennedy and Johnson, who had buttons, they pressed yeah. buttons, they had their secretary start the taping system. Nixon had a sound activated system. If he'd not had a sound activated system, I think he would have finished his second term. Wow. Because when John Dean um, gives that powerful testimony, uh, if you look back, at you know at the at the at the response the, of the American people, yes, Nixon lost support, but a lot of people felt that it was uh, he said he said that and and that they were likely going to um, believe the president over this disgruntled former lieutenant. Yeah, the tapes that demonstrated that John Dean was telling the truth, but absent those tapes, uh, the president the president's residual. Um, respect and authority in the country would have would have gotten him through that. So I, th- I think it's the it's the tapes, and then the fact that Nixon, unlike Trump, was an institutionalist. Even yeah. though he subverted institutions for his own political gain, he still believed in them, and he wanted to be viewed as a constitutionalist. Trump Donald Trump never cared about the institutions. He I'd be surprised if he ever bothered to read the Constitution. And and as for presidential norms, he thought them a joke. He thought them a sign of weakness. Um, I mean, how many times did Donald Trump ever refer to a president other than himself? Richard Nixon had this sort of dark, secretive side, which led him to do things that were unconstitutionally new or wrong. But he also could be shamed. He could be shamed when people saw the difference between the secret Nixon and the real Nixon. Donald Trump could not be shamed in those terms. Right. What we had in the Trump era was someone retest the institutions in a way that had not happened since Watergate. So, again, uh, the Watergate story is important, I think, not so much by the convoluted, because the convoluted way that Richard Nixon ends up losing his job. It's by the extent to which the institutions uh, we're, we're really not up to the task, uh, of removing a president unless the president made unforced errors.
0: And that, that makes me want to ask you to, so given that it's the tapes coming out really that, I mean, the tapes coming out is ultimately the thing that does Nixon in, right? I mean, and that is the result of a Supreme court decision that the tapes must be released and the tapes prove that he's been lying. Um, Can you imagine Nixon being driven from office absent the reporting of Woodward and Bernstein in the Washington Post? I mean, is that an essential ingredient or would this have probably come about anyway? And I ask that question not to to minimize the the quality and the importance of the reporting, but so much of how we remember Watergate is driven by that specific narrative of one thing leading to the other. And it is more complicated than that.
1: Well, uh, Woodward and Bernstein uh certainly put pressure on the political class uh to take the break in seriously yeah um and and i would say that their greatest contribution was they laid the foundation for the senate watergate hearings uh especially what they discovered about um the dirty tricks campaign now they. They're reporting exaggerated the extent of it, but not the importance of it, I think. And um, they're having discovered the story, some of the story of Donald Segretti um, and the Nixon attempt, the Nixon um, White House's attempt to mess with our democracy, uh, I think had a chilling effect on members of Congress. And I think that leads to the Senate Watergate investigation. And The Senate Watergate investigation lays the ground. For Dean's testimony, but also for the revelation of the tapes, I don't think you have a revelation of the taping system without the Senate Watergate hearings, and right. you don't really have the Senate Watergate hearings without Woodward Bernstein.
2: Right. So it's
1: it's not as direct as people think, but uh, you had all of the all of these all of these factors had to come into play. Uh, absent one of them, the story is different. Yeah, and there's one other piece that's forgotten, but is worth re- remembering. Nixon gives tapes without the Supreme Court. And, and, I, and I, I believe that this needs to be remembered because we need, as Americans, to think about how we've changed. In 1973, when Richard Nixon fires Archibald Cox, who's the special prosecutor, it, sets, it, it creates a firestorm uh, of, of, of opposition. And the firestorm of opposition is not partisan. It's bipartisan revulsion. The idea that a president of the United States can stop an independent investigation of his own misconduct. Mm -hmm. Republicans, as well as Democrats, uh, agitate for an impeachment inquiry. Republicans weren't saying that Nixon had to be impeached, but Republicans supported an inquiry. They did not react by saying witch hunt. Right. Now, perhaps if Trump had fired Mueller, we might have seen a similar moment. And I would argue that, that, that some of Trump's uh, more thoughtful advisors were looking to Watergate and were saying, let's not do what Nixon did. But what happens is Nixon in 73 fires Cox over an issue of whether to share eight tapes, there is such a firestorm of opposition that Nixon fears he's going to be impeached. And he decides to do two things, one, to hire another special prosecutor and two, to hand over to the grand jury, the very tapes that he'd fired Archibald Cox over. Um, that's Richard Nixon. One of those tapes was the cancer on the presidency conversation with John Dean, which proved that John Dean was telling the truth. Nixon gave that to the investigators. And it is that tape that we know from interviews later that Judge Sirica listened to. He was the judge overseeing the grand jury. Listening to that tape, he concluded Nixon was was guilty of conspiracy mm-hmm. and would have to leave office. It's that tape that the new special prosecutor, a man named Leon Jaworski, listened to and realized, oh, my God, the president of the United States has to leave office.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nixon is the one who gave the evidence to the investigators that led them to believe he had to leave office. Now, what they understood was that the American political class would not necessarily have him leave office over the cancer on the presidency conversation. But it's that conversation that is handed over to the House Judiciary Committee. And it's the conversations in that packet of conversations plus what Nixon would reveal himself in early 74 that lays the foundation for the House Judiciary Committee's decision to impeach Nixon in a bipartisan with bipartisan majorities. This happens before the um, Supreme Court um, tapes are released. The, the, The tapes that the Supreme Court demands Nixon release, they're not out before the impeachment votes. So Nixon is impeached on material he gives right. to the investigators. Now, in Trump world, they decide, I think the president decided, to give nothing. And they tested the proposition that you could survive an impeachment if you gave nothing because Nixon gave them the noose. Right. And it turns out that our political culture will permit a president to completely stonewall an impeachment. Richard Nixon didn't think that was possible. Right. Donald Trump tested the theory and it turned out to be true. So what's, that's why I'm, I think that the Watergate period is, is very useful, unfortunately, for showing the weaknesses in our system. Nixon actually helped his own impeachment. And we just witnessed what happens when a president decides not to play ball.
0: Um, uh, he comes out, well, he doesn't have to resign. And there are other movies, I think, too, that even, and that's a, it's such an important part of the Watergate story that it so often gets obscured when we tell it largely as a story of, you know, the fourth estate forcing someone from office. And we forget, too, the bipartisan uh, uh, <clears throat> will that was in play here. I mean, Elizabeth Drew in her great book, Washington Journal, captures a lot of that and how It was bipartisan. But I think about movies like Oliver Stone's Nixon or Frost Nixon uh, or even The Final Days, which was this great TV movie with Lane Smith as Richard Nixon, which is really about Watergate, but from his perspective, you know, we kind of tell it as this story now and understand it as a story of this, you know, deeply flawed man who was haunted by his own demons and his own insecurities and his own lust for power. But ultimately... It does come through in some of these other tellings more subtly, just as you're saying it, this is, was somebody who did fundamentally at the end of the day believe in institutions, even as he was seeking to corrupt them <laughs> and did, you know, that 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 kind of that 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 level of I don't know if you want to call it healthy respect for them, uh, which is something that clearly Donald Trump does not have, is kind of the ultimate guardrail in some ways that keeps the system from going completely over the cliff. Uh, yeah, I, I well. I mean, I, I, I believe, and it's perhaps
1: because I just listened to too many Nixon tapes and I've, I've read too many documents, but I, I think the depravity of the, President Nixon's view of power uh, is something that is insurmountable. But I do, I do understand what people, by like his most thoughtful advisors, people like Leonard Garment, who was a counselor for the president, see something Shakespearean. In in Nixon, I Mm -hmm. I understand why they see that. I it's just hard to get past the meanness. I mean, you know, in the summer of 1972, Nixon talked with his chief of staff about arresting Vietnam veterans who were against the war on trumped up charges so that he could have a massive um, amnesty uh, because he wanted to find a way to pardon the burglars. And he knew that if he pardoned the burglars, there'd be you know, political firestorm, political opposition. So he thought, well, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna pardon people on both sides. Let's get a bunch of lefties, put them in jail, right. and then we'll pardon everybody. Arrest now, them so we can pardon them. The depravity, I mean, just, just think about that. And it's scary because the president has the power to do that, that he still has to work with the FBI, and the FBI has to be complicit in this. But the idea that the president Came up with this idea, so it's not some bad idea that somebody said to him, and then the president was being sort of non-confrontational and said yes, 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 and then forgot about it. It was his idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so there that I think some of these movies that humanize Nixon, mm-hmm. I mean he was human, but that that seek to 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 make this almost tragic, are missing some of the of the story. I mean I. Frank Langella is a great actor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, whatever the other elements of his, of his uh, personality there might be. in uh, when, when he's acting, there's a great, and he made a fascinating Nixon.
0: In um, Frost Nixon. Yeah.
1: Um, in Frost Nixon. And I, I was actually there. I, I, I watched the premiere of Frost Nixon with, with Nixon's uh, nephew. Um, and uh, who, and Langella came over or the nephew came over to Langella and, and Langella said, I, I hope I, I got Nixon. I did. And, uh, and please tell the daughters that I really tried to be true to Nixon. And I think Langella's effort to find the layers of Nixon uh, was powerful. The problem with Frost-Nixon was that it gave the impression that Nixon had apologized, that thanks mm. to David Frost's uh efforts Nixon
0: journalist again, yeah
1: well, I interviewed Frost for the Nixon Library, who told me about the factual errors in this and 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 the and the fact of the matter is that this was a romantic view mm-hmm. of how this happened, and Richard Nixon never apologized for his abuses of power, never what he apologized for was mishandling. The political management of the break-in, right, and the arrests, and 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 that's what he he apologized for dragging everybody through his mismanagement of a con- criminal conspiracy. <laughs> he did not <laughs> apologize for the criminal conspiracy, right, and he didn't apologize for the abuse of power that preceded the conspiracy. One of the consequences of the pardon of Gerald Ford's pardon was. I believe, the American people never got to see a list of all of Nixon's crimes. Yeah. And although the impeachment committee did a heck of a job, I mean, it was a bipartisan committee. By the way, if the staff was bipartisan. They didn't have a majority of staff and a minority staff. Hillary Rodham was part of a bipartisan uh, staff um, that included Republican William Well, later governor of um <laughs> The state of or the commonwealth of massachusetts and but though they did great work and and minds were changed on that committee and southern democrats who normally would have voted with nixon uh and and republic some republicans moderate republicans and in one case one conservative republican actually voted against nixon and that's because of the the spade work they did the, they laid the foundation for seeing the pattern of corruption But I don't know if the public really ever saw in one place the the pattern of corruption. And they would have if Nixon had been indicted as a former president. Um, And so I've I've always felt, I've I've, I've shared the view of some, that the timing of the pardon was unfortunate for the country. That if Nixon had been indicted and the public had seen the full range of how he had misused power uh, we might have been better protected against a future abusive president, but we'll never know. We uh, Can't really run that um, experiment in history. And Frost Nixon, I think, missed missed the boat. Uh, Nixon. It would have been very good for our country if Nixon hadn't had had actually discussed what he did wrong the way some of the, his lieutenants did. Um, Bud Krogh, who was a, a key manager of the Plumbers. He didn't break into anything, but he managed the plumbers. He wrote a a beautiful book called Integrity. It's very short, but beautiful book about where he talks about what he did wrong and how he violated his oath to the Constitution and how he undermined our country and why he did it and why he was wrong. Nixon never did that. It would have been liberating for this country, for an imperial president to have so admitted uh, his misdeeds. And he didn't. And I'm afraid, Frost, Nixon romanticizes something that didn't happen. So do we misremember Watergate? Uh well if we if we remember it as as a moment when the system worked, we're misremembering it. Yeah. Um, uh if we remember it only as a moment uh when the, the fourth estate, I said fifth before, I should fourth. The four, when the fourth estate um uh brought down a criminal president, we're misremembering it. Fourth estate is very important to the to the to the sequence of events, but it didn't do it by itself. Um, if we think this is a moment when when Congress brings down a president, um, there, I think there is more truth to that. But we actually don't usually talk about the role of Congress. We talk about the Senate Watergate hearings, uh, but we don't ask ourselves, "Wait a second, there were these hearings, but yet there was no impeachment process." Right. The the leaders of the Democratic Party did not want an impeachment process against Nixon. They, there were Democrats who wanted to impeach Nixon. They were quite vocal about it. Um, but in the summer of 73, despite the Senate Watergate hearings, the leaders, including Teddy Kennedy, they didn't want to impeach Nixon. He's a, he was a very popular president. It wasn't going to go anywhere, even though the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. It was the Saturday Night Massacre. That pushed everybody over the edge. So so if we see this as, as the story of Congress bringing down a president, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. So I think the nuances in the story um, are important to understanding why our institutions are fragile. That's the takeaway I wish people would have, which is that we have a wonderful constitution, but it was designed in an era when there weren't any political parties, when the president did not have allies in Congress that were devoted to him as the leader of a party as opposed to head of state. And I think they took a, a, a too romantic view of, uh, of, of possible tyrants. They, they set up a system uh, so that no one um, uh, body, no one organization, whether, well, no one branch would be too powerful. But, but in giving, for example, the president pardon power, They hadn't thought about the possibility that the president would pardon people who were involved in a criminal conspiracy, which allowed him to abuse power. So there were there are uh, these gray areas and some flaws in our constitution that mean that we're not as protected as we ought to be
0: from an imperial president.
1: That's what I think Watergate should have shown us. But I'm not sure everybody got that lesson. Well,
0: I don't think we've learned it. Yeah, which actually, you know, is in, in the minutes we have, time we left, we have here to talk, gets us to this new article you've written for The Atlantic about the role that presidential libraries, which you know something about, having been the first federal director uh, of the Nixon Library, um, this, this new, uh, essentially this change that the National Archives and Records Administration wants to make, as I understand it, with respect to the George W. Bush Library, where they would essentially cede much of the I think of it as like the editorial decision making on how to construct exhibits and tell stories which the record, national archives and what you try to do with the Nixon administration is, uh, Nixon library is to do it in an objective very historical way that doesn't show favor you know to uh, any particular president doesn't try to Truly misremember the past by, in some cases, just obfuscating it, as the Nixon Library had done with the Watergate exhibit before you took over. And you write a pretty alarming article in the Atlantic that says Look, if Congress doesn't step in here and stop NARA, the Archives and Records Administration, from ceding control back to presidential foundations, then you're going to end up with a library potentially for George W. Bush that. Uh, says nothing about Katrina, says nothing about the disastrous decision to invade Iraq, that sort of paints everything in these kind of glowing tones. And of course, then uh, portends to an eventual Donald J. Trump library uh, in which we might have the January 6th attack on the Capitol, presently the subject of congressional hearings, um, be portrayed as, you know, uh, uh, an act of free speech. And as Donald Trump is portraying it now as a protest that got a little bit out of hand. So Talk, talk about this moment where the presidential libraries themselves, these repositories of the literal records of a presidency, are at risk now of becoming the subject of, you know, hagiography and, and arguably of disinformation.
1: We desperately need, I believe, at this time, as many national institutions, respected national institutions as, as we can have. Um we, as Americans, seem to dislike each other rather intensely at the moment. And, and we don't have many respected national institutions, but we have a few. One is the Smithsonian and one is the National Archives. Um, there is bipartisan, nonpartisan respect for those institutions. I wrote a piece when I learned that the National Archives was, was moving out of the museum business. It was going to keep its museum in in Washington D.C., but it was it was on the way to relinquishing any role in the museums in the presidential libraries. Uh, <clears throat> there are thirteen presidential libraries. There will be a fourteenth when the Obama Library opens. Um, and I I believe deeply that um, there's a national service that can be provided by nonpartisan uh, historical uh, exhibits. And I don't just mean bricks and mortar exhibits. I mean, web web exhibits. I think about all the, the, the high school students that are doing their history day projects and the, and the AP history and and regular history classes and the social studies students and the civics students who are reaching for information and their teachers are looking for information. And if you have a national institution that's respected and professional, uh, it can provide, um, bias-free data. And we're desperate now to combine, to have a national database instead of having our our uh, siloed data sets, which really define the Trump era. So it, it seemed to me tragic that at this point in time, it is especially awful if the National Archives removes itself. Now, there is a whole backstory. And if people would like to read my piece, uh, they'll get a lot of that backstory. Yeah, but and
0: we'll link to it in the show short, notes. And yeah.
1: in, in short, in, in short, in, in short, um when presidential, private presidential foundations talk about legacy, they always mean positive stuff. When nonpartisan folks talk about le- legacy, they mean everything. So we were just talking about Watergate. So Nixon has you know Nixon has a has positive achievements. Opening to China uh, the fact that he worked with Congress to establish the first and really powerful environmental protection, changing our country's uh, uh terrible policy towards um first peoples, uh Native Americans. Um there are a number of, of positive achievements of the Nixon administration, but there's also a negative legacy, which is all all of that abusive power that we all of those abuses of power we discussed. So the legacy is complex presidential foundations don't want it to be complex. They want it simple and they want it as positive as possible. The National Archives, when it oversees a museum, has a veto power over what's in the exhibits. The the Congress of the United States does not give money to the National Archives to build exhibits. So those exhibits, with few few exceptions, are built and paid for by the foundations. But But the federal government is there as a critic and editor And over time, the foundations, as the president passes on and that that generation of of lieutenants moves on, dies, or becomes less interested, the, the library's museum becomes closer and closer to the complex legacy as opposed to the simple one. That process happens not because presidential families are all that keen to see it happen, but because you have the federal government consistently and professionals on the ground consistently pushing in that direction but it means you have to expend energy. And it means you have to be willing to push back against powerful presidential families. Not everybody wants to do that. And and I think the National Archives got tired of it. And I think they shouldn't be tired of it because that's part of their job. And they wanna get out of it. Now, what is gonna surprise some of your listeners is the person who really made this possible was Barack Obama. Barack Obama, for reasons Best described by Barack Obama, decided he did not like the presidential library model. He did not want the National Archives to be critiquing his museum's exhibits, and he made his museum private. He said, "Uh, "We're not going to have a presidential library like the other libraries. We're going to have a private one in Chicago. We're going to leave all the documents and and the you know what you know. Imagine the size of the electronic records for the Obama administration. They're going to never. They're going to be in Washington, by the way." This decision that President Obama or his foundation made was made late because the National Archives had already spent our money to move all that stuff to Chicago. It was already moved to Chicago when the president changed his mind. So there's been a lot of money wasted uh, on this. But anyway, what President Obama did, and again, for his own reasons, was he laid the groundwork for the Trump library and for the, the current the deal with the George W. Bush library. By saying to the National Archives, you're playing no role whatsoever in the public history of my administration, he opened the door to removing that useful check on our more controversial presidencies. And so the George W. Bush people saw what Obama did and said, me too, me too. Let us leave, you know, freedom, freedom. And they forced the National Archives, um, uh, pressed them to do a terrible deal and and you know that the that when President Trump stops wanting to be president again when he stops wanting to be the Grover Cleveland of the 21st century his family's finally gonna start thinking about legacy right uh, and then they're gonna say oh we want the Obama model right we're, we're gonna we're gonna have the you know we're, we're gonna make January 6th out to be a a popular rebellion against a corrupt Congress um and I just wrote a piece saying stop we there it's unfortunate that, that President Obama did what he did. We we can't reverse that. But let's not, let's stop this. Let's not make this the future of the library system.
0: And I'm still somewhat hopeful we can stop it. Do you think in, that in, in the hearings that we've seen so far around January 6th, that the story of what that day was really about is breaking through to people? I mean, it is a bipartisan event insofar as, I guess, Liz Cheney maybe is one of the few Republicans willing to you know, honestly and truthfully describe the events, is out there speaking as the co-chair of this committee. But do we have an opportunity here the way we did with Watergate to sort of to break through to people in an apolitical way and say, we need to talk openly and honestly about a president who abused his authorities?
1: It's going to be very hard for me to talk about this without um, tearing up a little bit because um, I find it very hard to accept that the scenes of January 6th did not lead to national revulsion against Trump. Now, the first time I felt this was after Charlottesville. Uh, And we started this conversation by my talking about how I got interested in history. And seeing those white boys with... Um, lanterns in a city, well, in any city in this country would make me sad, but I used to live in Charlottesville. I, I, I couldn't believe that this was America. Now, I'm not naive. I know the history of the KKK, K- K- K, but I also um, have have sort of uh, taken solace in Martin Luther King and Barack Obama's discussions about how our, our our country, you know, the the arc of our history tends towards justice. And and what happened in Charlottesville was a complete reversal. Right. January sixth should have led to what happened in 1973, when Nixon uh, fired Cox. There should have been a moment of national revulsion and fear, and oh my God, what 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 has our leader leader wrought? And it should have led to a consensus, a bipartisan consensus, as was the case in late 73 and 74, that this man needed to be investigated. And that consensus lasted three days, maybe four days. Right. Now, part of what happens in 73 is it happens outside of Washington. It's the American people reacting. There was revulsion outside of Washington, but it was not as deep and as widespread, more importantly, as we needed as as a country to, to be in a healthier state now. I don't know what has happened to us that January 6th didn't make us all sick to our stomach. Every American, every citizen of this country should have been so angry at those, that mob for messing with what generations of Americans have worked so hard to put together. Yeah. And one would be naive to say that there was a national revulsion. The fact that we need uh, prime time television to break through something that, by the way, was covered on all the networks back then, back in January 6th. It's covered a
2: lot.
1: through. Breakthrough? What? Yeah. So I think we have a, a generational challenge. That 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 is that isn't just associated with Trump. Trump's Trump will come and go, um, but what's happened to us? What wh- one of the one of the uh, the really bright lights of the Watergate story is that. Americans change their mind about a president. We we all talk about how hard it is and it is
2: you. uh,
1: People usually vote emotionally. And uh, so there's an emotional attachment and people don't like to admit they're wrong. It's human. We we're all this way. It's I'm, I'm not the professor telling students. I mean, we're just all like this. Okay. Well, Richard Nixon won a huge landslide in 1972. And then by the summer of 74, his public support is 24%. That means millions of Americans who voted for him were disgusted by him. They changed their mind. We didn't see that in the Trump era. In fact, the people who who are favorable towards Trump is higher now than it was in January of 2021. It was about 34%. It's now 42%. Oh, my God. So I haven't a clue how one breaks through. I I don't have an answer. I keep saying sociologists, people in the future may tell us. That's, That's why this moment is so scary. I mean that. Because what more does this man have to do to be understood by most Americans in the terms that Judge Ludig used a clear and present danger to the United States. What does he have to do you, you You have respected conservative jurists you you have respected conservatives, let alone liberals and moderates and progressives, all recognizing that this man's rhetoric is designed to incite people to violence and to undermine any political outcome other than Trump wins or Trump allies win. That is a recipe for turmoil, violence, political people. And we have this man. uh, Now, I talked about how Nixon didn't apologize. That's true. But Nixon did admit error. (laughs) It wasn't enough. I think the country needed more. But he... But he he didn't go around, he didn't have rallies in 1975 and 76 attacking Gerald Ford and the Justice Department. Right. Um, And we have this man not only attacking the Democrats, which, you know, Republicans do that. Democrats do the same against Republicans. He's attacking Mike Pence. He is attacking the man whose life was in danger. He his vice president. So we have this malevolent force in this country. And Americans have a history of being pragmatic. Uh, Europeans always viewed Americans as a great pragmatists. Um, and in many ways, um, pragmatism was the American ideology. And we're not very pragmatic at the moment. Uh, we, there's a percentage of this country that is in, that is, that is in a enthrall, th- enthrall with this malevolent force. And I don't know how you break the fever to mix metaphors. I would have thought, I thought COVID would do it. I thought that the mishandling of COVID and the president's mixed messages about COVID and then his, his um, strong man performance at Walter Reed where he, put the lives of his Secret Service uh, agents at risk, that that might have been, enough. but that wasn't enough. And January 6th wasn't enough. I don't know what enough would be, Right. but there's something going on in our civil society which is very troubling. And I think it's not a historical. I think one has to go back to the 19th century and the and the and the way we we dealt with each other in the eighteen fifties to find a a similar dysfunction in our polity.
0: Well that is not a hopeful note to end on, Tim. Um <laughs> well I want to end on a
1: hopeful note. I just think we 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 have to get through the baby boomer generation. Mm. Um <laughs> two things have happened. One is the unresolved um Political civil war over Vietnam, um, and the other is uh, the unresolved consequences of the of globalization and free trade in the nineties. And I say this as a, as someone who who thought free trade was in the interests of of countries. I still believe it is, but it has a consequence, and we have not dealt with it as a people. You you have to move. You have to be willing to move. When, when free trade was presented to the American people, um, in the nineties, uh, and early two thousands, people were not saying, but you can't stay in upstate New York, or you, you can't really stay in, in Appalachia. You're going to have to move. Um, there'll be jobs for you, but you, you can't stay. Well, turns out, and it shouldn't be surprising because it's also true in Europe. I mean, it's true around the world. People don't like to move. They, yeah. Many people would like to stay where, they, where they're born, where their parents are, where their siblings are. And they, they saw their father have a job, or and in some cases, their mother, and they expect the same. Well, the shift in the world economy in the 90s has made that a much more difficult proposition. And that has deepened the long-standing tensions between the between rural America and urban America, because it's rural America that has largely been affected by this, because there are still jobs in cities, and and we just we haven't worked through this. My optimism comes from the fact that um, younger the younger my students um, are more flexible than their parents and their grandparents. And we may see that they're more willing to be mobile. And we may see that technology will allow them to do work without moving as the Zoom era, the Zoomers learned in the pandemic, you don't have to move to do work. In fact, a lot of companies are are trying to figure out how much in office work, how much office work do we need to have? Right. So it is possible that a the acculturation of the of the younger generation of the, the upcoming generation plus technology will uh, help bring uh, help uh, dissolve some of these barriers that make us intransigently um, um, angry in this country mm. i I think see that as our hope um, but it but it means we have to figure out how to get through the next 15 years um and, and I, you know, I, I think Americans find solutions. And my, my study of this country, I mean, primarily I study the modern era. I don't study the 1850s. I know something about it because, you know, I, I studied American history. But, but I've studied basically the modern era. And I see us finding work and workarounds. I mean, who imagined that the U.S. would innovate as it did in the 30s uh, with regard to the depression? Who would have imagined the U.S. would have innovated with regard to to building the largest military the U.S. had ever had in the 1940s? Keep in mind, the United States had, compared to other great powers, had a tiny army. It had a major navy, but it had a tiny army. It built what it needed to build in the 1940s. Who could have imagined that a country that largely tried to stay away from other people's problems would create this diplomatic power and capability in the 40s and 50s? Um, And then who would have imagined that Americans who didn't like to travel much would would decide to go abroad in the Peace Corps and share the benefits of uh, of of American education and technology. So, no, you wouldn't have imagined that. But it happened. Um, So the 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 innate pragmatism of Americans and this this youthful promise is, I think, going to allow us to start liking each other more it's just the next the next couple of uh, the next few presidential cycles are gonna be hard. And and I'm a historian. I'm really much better looking in the rearview mirror than looking ahead. So yeah. I'm not gonna make any predictions.
0: Well, our very last question on this show, the tradition always is, that I reach into the chatter box, which you oh. see right here, and I pull out a previously written question at random. Oh. Which hopefully it'll be a hopeful question too, because that was a wonderfully optimistic and actually very encouraging note to end on. Uh, And and I I must say, I agree with you not to pick on my parents' generation, but I do think we have to get through the boomer generation. Total subject of another different podcast, much love for all of my boomers out there, but it is time to pass the torch and we are still dealing with a lot of residual shit (laughs) from from, from you guys' generation. Um, So the question for you here is, this is a very good one for you, particularly as an historian and an historian of the national security state. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now. If you could reanimate the corpse of a former leader and bring him or her back.
1: Um, Franklin Roosevelt was wonderful. He was a, oh my God. How lucky was this country to have this self-confident magician and, uh, master of improvisation at the helm during the great depression but i don't think franklin roosevelt would be as effective now i think there's so much cultural dislike of patricians that i'm not mm-hmm. sure his he, his tone would be as effective right but but truman and eisenhower could speak to a lot of americans and put in terms that americans would connect with and I want to say understand because it sounds really patronizing, but I mean, the terms that people could connect with as to why this country is part of the world,
2: mm.
1: why it needs to be part of the world mm-hmm. and why, even though you're still going to have to worry about your crops and you're going to have to worry about problems in, you know, in, in your town, we are, we are inescapably part of a much broader um, community. And they could make that argument. And they did. And it was a remarkable shift in American international security life. I mean, it, the, the the basis for the consensual view that America has to play a role in the world, the basis of that view that lasted until 2017 um, was really people like Truman and Eisenhower. It, it's Truman um, uh, doing it for, for Democrats and it's Eisenhower doing it for the rest of of Americans, I mean, Eisenhower wins in a in a debate with someone who's making arguments somewhat similar to Donald Trump, although Robert Taft is much smarter than Donald Trump. But but that you know, the Republican Party is the party of an international engagement from Eisenhower until Trump. So it would be nice if we could find um, spokespeople to get us who were who would be trusted, who would get us back to first principles. Because I I think that though we can make a mess of the world, we are inescapably part of it. I, I really wish we had uh, someone from that World War II generation who could talk to people about sacrifice and honor and responsibility.
0: Me too. <laughs> but I'm glad that we have you out there talking about those things and articulating them beautifully, as you always do, and candidly and honestly and compellingly. And thank you for doing it here with us. This has been a great conversation, and uh, we're better for hearing it. I feel optimistic at the end of this.
1: Shane, it was was my pleasure. And um, though we uh, love having martinis together, Indeed. I want the listeners to know for sure But the optimism that we just talked about is not the product of a gin martini.
0: (laughs) Although I do look forward to our next one.
1: I sure do, too.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.